Lord, as we wind down here in this wonderful book of Ruth this morning, I pray that you would give each of us ears to hear just those things you want us to take away. No more and no less. In Jesus' name, amen. I won't say that we're finishing Ruth entirely this morning, although we are finishing the text. We'll actually do a wrap-up next week. And I might say, too, like Easter, next week's service schedule will be a little different. We'll have worship first, and then we'll have teaching. Teaching will be a little shorter next week, and we'll have the Lord's Supper to end service. I believe Sunday school will run as it normally does. It's a bit much to try and upend that schedule. So but it'll be a little different, our timetable in here. So worship first, then the teaching time, and the Lord's Supper will follow up on that. And we're in the book of Ruth. We're in chapter 4. If you remember last time in the first half of chapter 4, we saw our man, Boaz, he took the, the hidden, dark whispers and counsels of the night before, and he brought them into the light of day, into the public square there at the city gate in Bethlehem. And he called Mr. So-and-so, our nameless, would-be, other kinsman redeemer, aside. And with the elders and the people as witnesses, he tells him, Hey, redeem or get rid of your right to redeem, one way or the other. And Mr. So-and-so says, I can't redeem Naomi's land and Ruth the Moabitess. So... What we'd hoped would happen all along has, Boaz gets Ruth. And then chapter that portion that we studied in chapter 4 had that great chorus, just like out of a, a stage play where the people at the gate, then they declare their praises and they bless in the name of Yahweh. That's where we ended last time. And let me pick up there. We'll actually start at verse 13, but let me go back to verse 11. All the people who were in the gate... And the elders said, we are witnesses, that is, of the renunciation of one kinsman, as far as any redemption rights, giving those rights to Boaz, and Boaz saying, I am going to be the kinsman redeemer. I will redeem the land of Elimelech and Naomi, and I will take Ruth as my wife. And they say, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring which the Lord shall give you by this young woman. Verse 13, where we're officially kicking off this morning. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her. And the Lord, Yahweh, enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. I love this phrase in this opening verse of this morning's passage, Yahweh enabled her to conceive. You remember it's interesting in these verses before, they're praying that Ruth will have children. And of course remember that the the couple they're praying for and blessing in the Lord's name, Boaz is over the hill. He's an older guy. Will Boaz be able to father children? And Ruth has been married before, married for 10 years with no children. I can imagine the people at the gate blessing in one hand and yet wondering, will will this couple, kind of this odd couple, be able to have kids? We're praying they do, and that's obviously their wish and their hope, but will they be able to? It would be a question. 
And so the question is answered in this verse right away. Yahweh enabled her to conceive. God gave conception. You know, this is like so many other stories, especially in the Old Testament, where God wanted to make sure that people knew that the child that came was from him. So you remember starting back with Abraham, Abraham has promised a child that appears not to come. And God waits until he's so old that neither he nor his wife should be able to have any kids. Because God wants them to know that Isaac, this child of laughter, this child of promise, he's from me. He's not the mere product of human interaction. His conception is from me. And in fact, if you look at the line of Abraham, they all have trouble having children. Until you get to the patriarchs, some of those gals are fairly fertile. But uh, you look at Abraham and Sarah, look at Isaac and Rebekah, look at Jacob and Rachel. Three generations in a row all have trouble having children, having conception. And yet it's that very line that God has said He's going to bless the earth through and provide a redeemer for the earth through. And so he just seems to go to pains to show that in each case, these children are from him. This isn't happenstance, and it's not just people going about their daily affairs and having kids. God's in these works. It was Yahweh who gave conception. And we've said this before probably more than once, but it bears repeating again as we wind down in this story that oftentimes you and I are asking God for things Uh, fairly immediate needs or desires, maybe like chaplaincies or other things, where we're praying for something and it just seems like, boy, the days roll by and God doesn't answer our prayers. And sometimes, we all know, sometimes we ask God for things that He simply never gives. But oftentimes, He delays the answer because He has something bigger or better or more important in mind than the immediate thing we're thinking about. And again, we think of Boaz, older guy, probably given up hope of a wife and a family. We think of Ruth, come to Israel, no hope of a future husband or family when she comes to Israel as a lowly Moabite. And yet we see out of this unlikely scenario, God putting two people together because he's going to accomplish his plan. But it took longer than any of them would have cared to have waited. But oftentimes that's the deal. And I think it's a good reminder to us, sometimes God might give you a sense, use the term burden, that he wants to do a particular thing. And so you pray according to what you think God's will is. And sometimes it seems like the days roll by or the years roll by and there's no answer. But especially if you have a sense that God has said he wants to do a thing, don't give up. God's timetable oftentimes, more than often, uh, is not ours. And that was the case here. But God wanted them to know, this child is from me. This is part of my plan. Verse 14, the women, this chorus that was in 11 and 12, the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord, Yahweh, who has not left you without a Redeemer today. And may His name become famous in Israel. May He also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. 
Do you remember in the beginning of this book? This short book's actually taken a while to work through, hasn't it? But do you remember when we started the book of Ruth, we said Yahweh's name was nowhere to be found? It wasn't there. God's name wasn't there. And we saw that Elimelech and his family leave the land of promise, and they go to the place of Moab, and their, their intention is to be there briefly, and they stay, and they stay longer, and... And we're not sure what to make of that. And boy, Lord, are, they, are you in this or not? But his name's not there. But you know, you come to the end of the book, God's name is everywhere. And the choruses, the people in the gates, they're singing God's praises and their blessing in his name. And that's exactly what they do here to Ruth. Uh, the Redeemer here, if you look in verse 14 and 15, God has not left you without a Redeemer today. This actually appears to be not Boaz anymore being spoken of, but the baby who's been born to Ruth. Uh, The baby is now going to become the redeemer. Boaz has been the kinsman redeemer, but now this little one, this baby, is going to, remember, take the place of Elimelech and Malon. You remember he stands in the place. Boaz is actually raising up a child to stand in the place, to take the place of, to extend the line of Elimelech and Malon. And so as they're singing and blessing in God's name, they're saying, Naomi... Here's the one. This one, no matter how long Boaz lives, this one will be like your husband or like your son, one of those men in your life who would provide for you as you grow old. Here he is. Here he is, the one that will do that for you. And then the last thing they mention is Ruth. And this is is interesting. You know, Ruth... If you look for heroes in the story, I mean, you've got two, obviously. You've got uh, Boaz as a hero, and Ruth is too. And when these folks say, Ruth loves you, and she's better to you than seven sons. Remember, when they say this, this is a story about a woman, two women, wanting to have a son. And so the goal of the whole story is to have a baby boy. So when these gals say, Ruth is better to you than seven sons, it is, in a sense, the highest praise or blessing they could give. Seven is the number of perfection. And a son was the goal of the whole thing. And so they're saying Ruth, in her character and in the role she has played, No one, no son you could have, no group of sons you could have could perform any more nobly, any more loyally, any more faithfully or fully than Ruth has. Ruth who loves you. Ruth who stayed with you through thick and thin. Ruth who came back with you and showed this hesed, this loyal love. You couldn't have a baby boy, a descendant, any better in character or performance than Ruth has been. This is praise as high as it could get in this story. Ruth is as great a heroine as we could see, the women are saying. She's as good as any kinsman redeemer ever could be. Well, Naomi takes this little bouncing bundle, child, and laid him in her lap and became his nurse... And the neighbor woman, women gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi, so they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Uh, this is the only occasion in the Old Testament in which someone other than the parents appears to name the child. 
Obed, maybe, there's, there's a discussion on this, but Obed may be short for Obadiah, and it means one who serves. Probably the thought that here has come this child you've waited for who will serve you in your old age, who will play the role of a provider. So Obed, a servant, one who will help you in your old age. You know, with this last verse, the storyline actually ends here at verse 17, although the book does not. The storyline ends at verse 17. And if we had any question about, is this just a nice story about these two women and, gosh, their hopes were dashed and then God comes through and redeems them, if we've got a question about that, it's answered in verse 17, isn't it? Because while Obed was important and he is the conclusion of our story, he is the his birth, Boaz and Ruth's marriage, and then having a son. That's the climax. That's the end of the story we're looking for. But verse 17 tells us that, by the way, Obed is the father of Jesse, and Jesse is the father of David. So it is a nice story, and even if it didn't end this way, it'd be a good story, and we'd learn all kinds of good things. But this tag here in verse 17 tells us God was at work. God meant to bring this line. This was his doing because this is where Obed came from. And why is Obed particularly important? Because he's the father of Jesse. And Jesse, as we know, is the father of David, the king of Israel. And now we see the point to the story. God is continuing the line. And in David, of course, Israel will have a redeemer a relative who redeems Israel, the nation, from their troubles. David is not Israel's first king, but he is their first great king, and he's their first promised king. So we see that there is a point to the story. Now, if the story ended there, it'd be, it'd be okay, but it doesn't. Verses 18 through 22 follow. Most commentators think that this is a later addition to this book, these verses 18 through 22. Whether it is or not, <clears throat> doesn't ultimately matter. <clears throat> this takes this thought of genealogy, Obed, Jesse, David, and it, it enlarges it a little bit. And it takes it back quite a bit further, past the days of the judges. Let's read verses 18 through 22. Now these are the generations of Perez. Now as soon, you remember we said on the beginning of the story, when the Jews heard Elimelech, the famine in the land, he goes to another place. Almost certainly they're thinking Abraham and Isaac. Stories that start with the same phrase, now there was a famine in the land. And we're thinking happy ending, as happened in those early Genesis stories. When a Jew heard this, now these are the generations of Perez, any Jew hearing this or reading this story for the first time would immediately hearken back to the book of Genesis again. Because this phrase, these are the generations, this, these are the key markers in the book of Genesis. Genesis 5, Genesis 10, I can't remember where Ishmael's line is. These are the, the lines, if you will, the uh, literary dividers in the book of Genesis. And each time you read that, the generations, God's reminding you of his program being carried out in the line of the patriarchs. So the Jews are as soon as they hear this, these are the generations, we're back to Genesis. We're back to thinking about God's promises and Abraham and his descendants and what God had promised to do. So these are the generations of Perez, whom we know, already named, is the son of Judah, one of the twelve patriarchs 
To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram Aminadab, and to Aminadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse David. So this takes that short list in verse 17, expands it. And if this story takes place, let's just say ballpark, around 1000 B.C., this takes us all the way back to about 1800 B.C., about 800 years back, to Judah, one of the 12 patriarchs. It puts it in a larger context. And remember, for the Jews hearing this, the generations, these are the generations, remind us of God's program being accomplished through Abraham's heirs. And when they start with Perez, there's 10 generations here, probably meant to be before and after the exile, when they go back to Judah's first descendant, we're probably meant to remember Genesis 49, when Jacob's lying in bed in Egypt dying, he blesses Judah among all the patriarchs, and he says from the line of Judah, that's where the scepter comes from. That's where one will rise who will be ruler of Israel. So this larger context, this larger genealogy re- reminds us This wasn't just a short story during the time of the judges. This goes back to God's plans in Genesis. This carries on the same line. This is the promise to Judah that God would raise up kings from his line. And here he is, David. Now, I like this genealogy, but I don't want to close without reading another one. Genealogies many people find boring. But this is short. This genealogy giving us context again, written about a thousand years after this story. This is from Matthew, chapter 1. And you remember Matthew was written so that Jews would know that Jesus was the promised Messiah, that he was the descendant promised to Abraham, and that he was the ruler king promised to David. Matthew wants to make that clear, so this is how he starts his book. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Or we could say, now these are the generations of Jesus Christ. He was the son of David. David's important because it was understood from David. God made a promise in Chronicles. From you, David, one will come who will reign over a kingdom that will never end. Who was the son of Abraham? Remember, biblically, oftentimes son of does not necessarily mean son of the way we think, but descendant of. So, son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham was promised that his seed would bless all the earth. Okay, and this is the genealogy. Verse 2, to Abraham was born Isaac, and Isaac Jacob, and to Jacob Judah and his brothers. We don't care who the other brothers are. You know why? Because Messiah comes from Judah, and that's what we're concerned with. And to Judah were born Perez. We've seen his name, haven't we? And Zerah by Tamar, and we've just seen Tamar's name, haven't we? And to Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron, Ram. To Ram was born Aminadab, to Aminadab, Nashon, and to Nashon, Salmon. This sounds fairly similar to Ruth 4. To Salmon was born Boaz by Rahab, and to Boaz was born Obed by Ruth, and to Obed, Jesse, and to Jesse was born David the king, and to David was born Solomon by her, who had been the wife of Uriah. Now, while a few of these names are familiar because of the text of Ruth 
Did you notice the difference in the genealogical tables between Matthew and Ruth? Matthew includes the names of four women. Four women. And just take a look at these for just a minute with me. Tamar. Uh, you know, Ruth makes absolutely no negative inference on Tamar. But read Genesis 38 and tell me what you think of Tamar. Genesis 38, Judah, the patriarch from whom the king will come, Judah takes a Canaanite for wife, has three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. So it's not surprising that he takes a Canaanite for his oldest son's wife, Tamar. Ur, his oldest, is evil, and it says God takes his life, kills him. That leaves Onan, the second brother, to play the role of kinsman-redeemer and raise up Ur's name through a descendant with Ur's now widowed wife, Tamar. However, Onan refuses to do so, and God takes his life. Here's Judah. He's lost two sons to the same woman. He's got one son left. What does he do? He doesn't give her his son. So what does Tamar do? Then Tamar's not like Ruth, hanging back, waiting to see what God does. Tamar takes things into her own hands. She dresses like a prostitute. She's not, but she dresses like one and puts herself where Judah comes. She entices him. She has sex with him, with her father-in-law. And she conceives. And who does she have? She has Perez. They're blessing in the name of Perez. Perez is, in a sense, the illegitimate son of Judah. Judah didn't try to have this baby. Tamar played the role of a prostitute to get pregnant, to have a son, because Judah had refused to give Shelah, his third son, to her. Tamar, she's in the list of Messiah in Matthew 1. She's specifically mentioned and brought into the list. She's the mother of Perez. Well, it gets better. She played the role of a harlot, but look who else is in this line. Rahab. Hmm. You know, now there's more than one Rahab in the Bible, but this is almost certainly the Rahab of the story of Joshua, right? Tamar played the part of a prostitute. Rahab didn't have to play at it. She was. She was a prostitute. She lived on the city wall of Jericho. But this prostitute had faith, and in fact, she's mentioned positively in the New Testament twice. She knew that this God who led this weird nation out of Egypt, she knew he was the real God. So that when the Jewish spies come into Jericho to check it out, she hides them. At risk to herself, she hides them. And she tells them she knows what's going to happen. She has faith in Yahweh, the God of Israel. And because of that, they say, you took care of us, we'll take care of you. And when the walls of Jericho fall, the only survivors are Rahab and her family. And she takes up life in Israel. And she apparently marries Salmon. And Rahab, the prostitute, is mentioned in Matthew in the line of the genealogy of Israel's king and Messiah. Rahab, the harlot. We've got Ruth mentioned here, too. And we've talked about this. Moabites were cursed by God. In fact, early on, they were not to be led into the assembly of Israel because when Israel came up from Egypt, the Moabites wouldn't let them through. And I don't know if you remember, but numbers, the Moabites curse Israel, and they get Israel to play the role of harlot. 
by joining in their pagan sacrifices. And Ruth is one of these despised from the nation, the cursed nation of Moab. And then I kind of like this. In a story in which a would-be kinsman redeemer who says, no, I can't or I won't, raise up the name of someone else. You remember we said he's not called by name. In chapter 4, Mr. So-and-so. This next woman is actually not named. She's just called the wife of Uriah. Now, we know the story, and therefore we know her name. Her name is Bathsheba. So we've got a pretend prostitute, a real prostitute, a malign Moabite, and now we've got an adulteress. You remember? Bathsheba, this lovely creature, her husband, her godly, also Canaanite husband, is out fighting Israel's wars for king and country, and she's sleeping with the king. This is Bathsheba. And these are all four named in Matthew's gospel to show us where Jesus came from. Do you find this odd? I do. If you and I were saying, we've got a plan for the world, and we're going to send our descendant into the world, our thought would be, we'll make it pristine and clean, right? Now, there'll be noble men and noble women. Well, that's not what we have here. And, you know, I suspect one of the reasons this is the case, you remember Jesus says, I've come to call sinners to repentance, not righteous. You know, if God looks down on the earth for the righteous, what does he see? He doesn't see any. They're not to be had, are they? Romans 3, there's none righteous. No, not one. There's none who does good. There's none who seeks God. I think this is probably a poignant reminder that all God has to work with is clay. All God has to work with is sinners like you and me. So he's not, this line is not pristine, and Messiah doesn't come from the noble, so to speak. He comes from the wretched, the maligned, the sinners. He's without sin. Scripture makes that clear, but his line is not. It's anything but. This is, a, I think this offers hope for you and I. Let me read to you something from the New Testament a thousand years after that book of Ruth. Listen to this. This, is, uh, this helps keep things in per- perspective, I think, or should for most Christians. Paul's talking to a group in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 1, and they've got a pride problem. They think they're pretty hot stuff. They think they're pretty wise, pretty wealthy, pretty with it. This is what Paul says, starting at verse 26. Consider your calling, brothers. Look around you. Look around your group that there were not many wise according to the flesh. You know what? He says you're not a group of intellectuals. You're kind of dumb. You're a group of dummies. Not many wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty. You know what? You're not politically savvy or important either. You're losers. And there's not many noble. You're not the aristocracy. You're the gutter guys. You're the lowly. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. The base things of the world, this is what he's calling them. The base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not 
that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. It's by his doing that you're in Christ Jesus, who has become to us real wisdom from God, real righteousness, real holiness or sanctification, and real redemption. Not those things by the appearance of man, but the real things that God gives. Just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, God looks, I mean, Paul looks at the church and he says, guys, you're not the mighty and the powerful. You're not the noble. You're the losers of the world. There's not many that are successful by worldly standards. And when God goes to bring a redeemer into the world, he chooses the losers. He chooses a pagan from Ur without any kids to be the first link in the chain to give the world a redeemer. And this guy, are his descendants noble? I mean, they're tricksters and they're deceivers and they're murderers and they're adulterers. I mean, you name it. That's, that's the line of Jesus, the Messiah. And I think God wants to remind us through Paul and through Ruth and through Matthew's genealogy, God works with losers like you and me. And if we think that we bring to God's plate some nobility on our own or some power on our own, we're crazy. He says he takes the things that aren't, have no power in themselves, because all his power, remember, anything God does is done through spiritual power. It's not done through human power. We have nothing to bring to the plate, no righteousness, no holiness, no spiritual power, nothing. So God's taking... His spirit, he's putting it in clay pots like you and I, 2 Corinthians says, and then he's accomplishing his will and his work. So it reminds us, gosh, it's not us that get this job done. It's not Boaz or Ruth in the end that get God's program accomplished. It's God who's doing it. So if God can work in the likes of Ruth and Boaz and Tamar, and Rahab, do you think there's hope that he can work in and through people like you and me? I think he can. I think we're supposed to come away with that conclusion. You know, this is a, just on the literary scale, this story is, is outstanding. I'm not sure it's surpassed in either Old Testament literature and certainly in secular literature. The literary structure, we haven't gotten much into this, but the, the uh, use of bookend phrases and one thing and another, this story is probably without peer as a, as a simple short story. But, you know, think of some of the lessons along the way. You remember we said in the dark days of the judges. Read the book of Judges if you want the scenario into which Ruth comes. It's terrible. Terrible, terrible things happening. In the dark days of the judges, when everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, just like they were before the flood when God condemned the world, God's quietly at work to bring about his will during these dark days. Or from the spiritually dark land of Moab, this cursed nation, God is raising up this heroine, this picture of God's faithful, loyal love and gets her through marriage and death into Israel? Or that God's means of providing for Israel and in the end for the world was through an over-the-hill bachelor and a barren Moabite? 
I love this. You know, so I, I say to myself or to you, is it spiritually dark around you or in your world? I, th- I think it is. Is it spiritually dark around us? Do people do right as they see it in their own eyes? Yeah. Well, that's what was going on in the story of Ruth. That was the world this story happened in. Or are you insignificant in the larger political world or economic world? There's no Wall Street tycoons in our midst. You know, that was Ruth. That was Ruth and Naomi, absolutely without power and without any significance politically, economically, etc. Have you sinned? Have you blown it? Have you blown it big time? Those are the people in Jesus' line, in his genealogy, people who blew it big time. Or have you gone out full, like Naomi says, and and come home empty, like she did earlier in chapter 2? God God was working. Have you gone out full and come back empty? That's not the end of the story. And I love, I just want to close with this verse out of Acts 10. Peter reminds us, I think, of some of the key concepts of this story when he says of, of lowly Gentiles, people that he didn't think God could save, of lowly Gentiles like Ruth, Peter says this, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. If you're a sinner, if you're a saint, if you're a Gentile or a Jew, Peter says, I now get it. Anybody who comes to God, to this Messiah, Redeemer of Israel, God welcomes. He'll use you and I. He'll use the lowly likes of you and I wherever we're at. And if the days are dark, it doesn't matter. God's still at work. And if we go out full sometimes and feel like we've lost everything, God's still at work. He's there to redeem. If we're lowly and insignificant, God's still at work. In fact, He delights to use the lowly because that gives Him the glory. You remember? That's what He wants. God glorifies Himself by using the lowly like you and I. Because then everyone says, we know they couldn't have accomplished that on their own. It must have been God. And that's what they did with the, with the early church. The, that early church that turned the powerful Roman Empire, it says, turned the world upside down. These nobodies in the Roman world, how'd they do that? It wasn't them. It was God's power. God was at work through them. So, you know... All of us have walked down rows in life that we thought were going to turn out different than they have. We thought it'd be glory and it's been despair. We thought it'd be children and it's no children. Or we thought it'd be wealth and it's been poverty. But you know, the story's not over till it's over. And in the dark days and in our weakness, think about Ruth. Think about Matthew's genealogy. And say to God, Lord, I'm not much but I'm yours, and you use me. You work in me, and you work through me to accomplish your purposes. Say with Ruth, Lord, where you go, I'll go. You're my God, I have no other. Where you take me, that's where I want to be. We can live with that. God can use us with that kind of attitude, just as he used Ruth and Boaz. Let's pray.
Lord, I'm just struck again and again. I, uh, we want power, Lord. We want to wave a wand and make the world right. We want to tell you when to come back to the earth. And, and Lord, we think at times we can figure things out if you'd only give us uh, the power to do so. And, and I'm struck, Lord, that uh, we've got to come humbly to you bow down to you and say, Lord, we submit ourselves. We submit our goals. We submit our desires. We submit all that we are and have to you. With Paul, we want to lay ourselves on the altar. It's the only sensible thing to do and offer who we are and what we are to you, Lord. And that even though if we may be nothings on our own, Lord, you can work through folks just like us as you did, Ruth. And Lord, even if we've blown it big time and we all sin in many ways, that simply makes us fit vessels for your mercy and for your forgiveness and to be used by you in the life of others. God, I pray that the effect of the story of Ruth is that we have hope that in our life and in our world, you can use us and accomplish your will as well. Lord, glorify yourself by working in and through each one of us just the way you want to, Lord. Help us to keep our eyes focused on you and know that power to accomplish your will comes only through your spirit, not through ourselves. Lord, we submit ourselves to you and your purposes and your plans in Jesus' name. Amen.